On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the first of the series, The State of Murder. Starting off our journey through the U.S. is Alabama. This will be quite a ride, so strap in. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. dive in, I decided to do the state of murder because while swimming around in the internet, I was overwhelmed because there are so many cases. It's actually mind boggling. So I've got my scribbed library full of true crime books, ditto for my audible library. And no, those are not commercials for either app. If you haven't noticed, I don't have commercials very often. Maybe I'll start having five or six a show and I'll babble for the first 15 minutes, and then I'll talk to myself out loud for some of it. Or maybe not. So anyways, I thought, why don't I just go state by state and pick a case, or two, or three, and see what kind of evil we can find in all 50 states. Sounded fun. I might regret my decision when we get to the M states, because there are quite a few. For now, I'm excited to take a little murder tour of the country. I hope you are too. Let's get to it. It's October in 1960, and 14-year-old Raymond Eugene Brown wants some football shoes, but he doesn't have the money. There are options. He could get a part-time job somewhere in Clay County, Alabama, and earn a few bucks. He could ask his parents or someone else in his family. But rather than do that, he decides burglary is a better option, and he doesn't intend to rob a stranger. Decides to break into the home shared by his grandmother, great-grandmother, and his great aunt. Using the darkest cover, he goes barefoot through the house looking for any money that might be laying around. Even barefoot, and even while attempting to be sneaky, his great grandmother wakes up and wants to know what's going on. Brown, afraid that people will know what he's been up to, opts to grab a six inch bladed butcher knife to kill his 83 year old great grandmother. Rather than flee the scene, this teenager decides to go kill his grandmother, age 63, and his 31-year-old aunt as well. There were at least 123 stab wounds combined among the three victims, and the aunt had a slash wound from throat to pelvis. Remember that. Brown neglected to find the purse that had $40 in it at the crime scene. In the days after the murder, according to the book Path of the Psychopath by Bob Curley, Raymond, who his family mostly called Gene, by sixth grade the other kids started calling him Eugene, didn't act like a typical teenager. He didn't cry. He didn't seem upset at the murder of his three relatives. Just so you know, it was the newspapers after the crime that began referring to him as Raymond. It's really difficult to find a lot of information about Gene as he was a kid. Oddly, I couldn't even find out for sure in my initial hunt what race Raymond was. He is described as having dark hair and eyes and olive skin. In prison, they referred to him as part Indian, but I don't know if that meant Native American or what. Eventually, I found in the confession he signed where it lists his race as white. 
I read through the book I mentioned, which the author also makes mention of how hard it is to find info on Raymond when he was young. He says, the author, that he interviewed people to get the info he has in the book. But he also mentions that he had to use his writing skills for some of the narrative. So here is the gist of what I gleaned. Take it for what it's worth. Raymond's parents were Marvin and Emma May. He was the middle of three boys, Ray, who was older, and David, who was younger. His father was a pretty strict figurehead. He would use the belt on the boys when they didn't do as he expected. They moved to Ashland in 1957 to an old house owned by Raymond's grandmother. The house that Raymond lived in was about 100 yards from the grandmother's house. Grandma was Ethel Ogle, who was living with and taking care of her mother-in-law, which was Raymond's great-grandma, Everlina, and an aunt named Berta May. Ethel was Emma May's mother. So when it came time to get supper ready, sometimes that meant someone had to go kill a chicken. Raymond was always up for that. He liked to use a knife rather than a hatchet and cut the bird's head off. Now, I am not saying that people who live on a farm and have to kill chickens are bad or crazy, but I am saying that 13-year-old Raymond really looked forward to it. Take that for what it's worth. Raymond is not a very emotional boy, and he does seem to have a wicked temper, which I guess would make him emotional in that way. But it also seems like this temper was really short-lived. So, like, the boys would be playing a card game, and if things aren't going Raymond's way, he'll explode, throw the cards, strike out at his brother, brother or brothers, sometimes jump on them and wrestle around, pound on them, and then bam, he's fine sitting back down, and they start playing again. Sometimes when he and his siblings are getting into it over a game or whatever, their dad Marvin is on the sidelines kind of laughing and like, boys will be boys, as his attitude. Raymond's mother, Emma May, was by all accounts a good-natured, quiet lady. She worked at a pants factory and took care of the home. Marvin worked in manual labor and would come home tired and dirty. The boys all had chores, and if they didn't get done, they would probably get the belt. Raymond, if he was being punished with the belt, would not cry, even at age six when his father would take the belt to him. Sometimes Raymond would say outlandish things, like while milking a cow, the cow hit him in the face with her tail, and he has this crazy outburst, threatening the cow and telling her that he will cut out her liver if she hits him with her tail again. Maybe not something a normal young boy would threaten to do. In the book, there is a chapter that refers to a man as he. No name, just he. And supposedly, this man shows up in a new truck when Raymond and his brother are at the grandmother's house. Apparently, Raymond's family had a pig that escaped, and so they went looking for the pig, and that's where they found it, at grandma's house. They tie up the pig, they go into grandma's to have cookies, and this mysterious he shows up. He offers to take Raymond for a ride. So they go for a ride, and at some point this man overpowers Raymond and sodomizes him. This man then threatens Raymond that if he tells anyone, he will kill his grandma and great-grandma and then go kill his brothers and his parents. Get the impression Raymond is a teenager 13-ish, uh, somewhere in there when this supposedly occurred. 
So at the same time, Raymond has discovered football. And he has a big, muscular kid for his age, and he's also very fast. According to the book, again, one of his classmates knew that Raymond needed new football shoes. And I even read that the coach was going to kick him off the team if he didn't get new shoes. I don't know if that's true, but it's what it says. Supposedly, a few days after the funerals, when Raymond returned to school, he went right back to football practice, and he had new football shoes. No one seems to know where these shoes came from. Initially, the main suspect was Bertamay's husband, Bertamay the aunt. Everyone thought he was her ex-husband, but it turned out they were still married. The suspicion was that he'd gone there to kill his wife and then had killed the other two because they saw him. Well, he had an alibi. There was other gossip around town that Marvin had done it, because after all, he was weird and no one particularly liked him. Seems his temper was no secret. Other people in town were sure it was someone from out of town that had snuck in to rob the place, but there was money still there. Emma May had gone into Ashland on Saturday to cash great grandma's social security check for her and that money was there. Aunt Berta also had some cash and so did grandma Ethel. They looked at J.L. Ogle Ethel's son and Emma May's brother. Apparently, J.L. was an admitted homosexual, and some people thought he might have been the one to assault Raymond, but he denied it. There was nothing linking him to the crimes either. But J.L. had a theory that the motive was the money and that whoever did it knew the house and knew where the money would be, but was too excited after the killings to take the money. There was also a tall Indian man that Berta May was dating, even though she was still married. Now, I say Indian man because that's what it says in the book. I am assuming we're talking about a Native American. He was considered briefly as a suspect, but quickly eliminated. He did show up in court once they had their suspect, and there was talk that he was actually the man who'd shown up in the pickup truck and molested Raymond. So here is the story, some from his confession and some from the author Bob Curley. On Friday, October 6th, Raymond is in class as usual. He has a pocket knife, which in the 60s wasn't uncommon for teenage boys to have. And he spends the whole class carving the top of the desk, totally ignoring the teacher. Charles Ogle, a classmate and a distant relative, is sitting right in front of him. He never turns around to see what Raymond is carving onto the desk. Later, kids will tell police about it, and they show up and take the desk. What is carved on that desk is never revealed. After school that day, there was football practice. Raymond and Charles are both there. Afterwards, because their team doesn't have a game that night, most of the other players go to watch their rival, Linville. Raymond and Charles are the only two left in the locker room. Well, guess who walks into the locker room? Sheriff Paul Levine and investigator Floyd Mann. Charles hurries up and finishes getting dressed. Raymond is still in the shower. The sheriff calls out to Raymond that he needs to get dressed and come with them. Charles is thinking that the police have a suspect and they want to talk to Raymond about that person. Raymond gets dressed, puts on his old crappy shoes, and puts the new football shoes into his locker. He then leaves with Sheriff Levine and Floyd Mann to the courthouse where they sit down with Raymond and point blank ask him if he killed the women. Calmly and even smiling, 
Raymond says, no way would I kill my grandma, great-grandma, and aunt. They question him some more before investigator Mann tells Raymond that they have his bloody fingerprint in Berta May's room. Raymond only pauses for a second before he tells them that he isn't surprised. He says he was one of the first people to go into the house. His mother, Emma May, had gone to fetch water and had entered the house. Little side note, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier. I don't think I did. They had no running water at the house that they were living at, Raymond's house. So if they wanted water, they had to go to grandma's. So anyways, Emma May is standing outside in hysterics and Marvin is trying to calm her. Raymond says he went into the house and found all the bodies and says he probably touched the bed in Berta May's room. The investigator then tells Raymond that they also have a bloody footprint at the scene that they believe belongs to Raymond. He responds by shrugging and saying, same thing, meaning same reason. At this point, Raymond isn't giving them anything, but they aren't going to give up so easily. They keep throwing the questions at him and accusing him of being the killer, saying, we know you did it. Eventually, Raymond says, quote, I done it. He goes on to tell them that he threw his bloody clothes into a honeysuckle patch. The sheriff tells Raymond to show them, and he does. They go out near the barn by the house and down a path. Raymond goes into a woody area and points to the wad of bloodstained jeans, shirt, and underwear. Meanwhile, word has spread through their small community that the killer has been found, but they don't realize it's Raymond. Granted, some people saw Raymond go inside the courthouse with the sheriff and then leave with the sheriff, but they just assumed he was in there for the same reason Charles did and that the sheriff took him home afterwards. Mob starts to form outside the courthouse, supposedly a lynch mob, ready to deliver justice to the person who killed the three women. The sheriff decides to try and keep Raymond's identity a secret a little bit longer. They put a hood over Raymond's face and some officers shuffle him into a patrol car. They drive off, hoping the mob will think that the killer is being taken to another jail. A few people try to follow, but most stay behind just kind of milling about the town square. Guessing they get bored after a while and the mob breaks up. That happens, the sheriff has Raymond brought back and put into Ashland Jail. By Saturday morning the 7th, everyone knows that Raymond is the one they arrested. I read through his confession and here are more details on the crime along with some more of the author's commentary. If you would rather not hear the nitty gritty, then fast forward a bit. On Saturday, October 1st, Raymond hears his mom tell his dad that she'd cashed great-grandma Everlina's welfare check and had taken it to her. Raymond decides then that he's going to go steal that money. 4.30, he goes to the house and asks Grandma Ethel if he can look at the Sears catalog. She goes and gets it and gives it to him. He finds the football shoes he wants and leaves the catalog open to that page. Seems like he's hoping Grandma Ethel will see it and maybe offer to buy the shoes for him. This might be his attempt to get out of stealing the money. In Raymond's mind, he is convinced that if he has new football shoes, he will make varsity and be a football star. So with this in his head, he goes back to Great Grandma's room, who he calls Mama. He talks with her for a bit and then goes back out to see if his plan worked. It hadn't. The catalog is now closed and Grandma Ethel is in the kitchen cooking. Now in the book, it says that at some point, Raymond places a butcher's knife 
on a sewing machine. I believe in the guest room. The confession does not say this. But it's important to note because it will explain how, when things start going terribly wrong, there is a weapon readily available. Back to the timeline. Raymond leaves and heads back home. About 6 p.m., Aunt Bertamay comes to his house, and she stays there till about 9 before she goes back to Grandma Ethel's. After watching TV for a little bit, he heads to bed. The book says that in that time frame, he asks his dad for money for the shoes, but gets a pretty gruff no, money don't grow on trees, get a job, etc. speech from Marvin. Don't know if it's the case or not, but there you go. Before falling asleep, Raymond works out a plan. He knows the welfare check is at least $50, and maybe he won't even take all of it, maybe just $5. If someone does realize there's a few bucks missing, they would never suspect him. He goes to sleep and wakes up at midnight. He puts on some jeans and a shirt, but opts to go barefoot to walk the 100 yards down the path to grandmother's house. Raymond figures the money is in a drawer in the dresser located in the guest bedroom. So that's his target. He's trying to tiptoe through the house, but it's an old house, and of course, the floorboards are creaking. Far though, it doesn't seem like the noise is waking anyone up. The guest room is supposed to be empty, so he creeps in there and starts digging around in the drawers, but he isn't finding any money. The drawers are creaky too, but initially he's not all that concerned. Until, that is, he hears something and realizes there is someone in the bed. It's his Aunt Bertamay, who shouldn't have been in the room. Before I go any further, if you were paying attention at the beginning, I said he killed Grandma Ethel first and then the other two. Now I'm telling you it was Bertame, and I'll tell you the reason for this. You get varying versions of who died first, depending on what website you go to. But based on Raymond's confession and the book, Path of a Psychopath, it was Bertame who was his first victim. So I'm going to continue along that um, timeline. May is confused when she wakes up and sees Raymond, but then she sees the open drawers on the dresser and it occurs to her what he is doing. He accuses him of trying to steal great grandma's money, which is of course exactly what he was trying to do. She tells him she is going to tell his father and that he will get a whipping for it. This is when, according to the author of the book, Raymond goes to get the knife that he had stashed earlier that day. He starts stabbing Berta May. He stabs her three times, but she is not going down without a fight. She manages to get away briefly. He catches her and holding her from behind in a kind of bear hug, he stabs her repeatedly. Even after she falls down, just a few feet from great grandma's room, he keeps right on stabbing her. Great grandma calls out to Bertamay, who I'm sure has been screaming as she fights for her life. Raymond then walks into the 83-year-old woman's room and stabs her multiple times. On the floor outside the room, Bertamay is still clinging to life. Raymond goes back to her and just keeps stabbing and stabbing until she stops moving. He then goes to Grandma Ethel's room and finds her there standing between two beds. He stabs her three times, and when she falls onto the bed, he cuts her throat. She's still moving, so he plunges the knife into her throat and drags it down to her stomach. He then goes back to Berta May, 
flips her over, and begins stabbing her in the area of her genitals. He wipes his fingerprints off the knife and tosses it into one of the bedrooms. He washes his hands and face in the kitchen and heads for home. On the way home, he dumps his bloody clothes into the honeysuckle patch and walks the rest of the way naked. Once back in his bedroom, which he shares with his brother Roy, he puts on some shorts and a shirt and climbs into bed. In the book, it says he fell right to sleep, but woke up around 1 a.m. when it suddenly dawned on him that he never took the money. And here again, I'm going to point something out. Like I said, I read a few accounts, some from newspapers, some from other websites. What I originally read was that it was Aunt Berta May who he opened throat to pelvis. The book Path of a Psychopath says it was Grandma Ethel. I just wanted to point that out again, that later when I mention Aunt Berta May and Linda, one of his later victims, and say they were both laid open, that is why I said it. To be honest, I'm not sure which woman it really was, but the fact that both were brutally murdered is enough. Raymond goes on trial. Meantime, in the town, there are divided opinions. Some people believe he did it, and others are just as convinced he did not do it. Even though he confessed, some people could not believe this 14-year-old boy had committed such a horrible crime. Through the trial, he showed no emotion, except when he was found guilty. That is when he began to cry. So I read that he is given a life sentence. Yet in other places I read, it was a 13-year sentence, which seems a bit mild for a triple homicide. I originally assumed that it was due to his age, but then I ran across info that he was tried as an adult. Now, how does that make sense? Kill three people and get that kind of sentence? Anyway, Brown claims he didn't recall the killings, but he did plead guilty. I don't buy for one minute he didn't remember brutally and savagely stabbing those women, but whatever. He is sent off to prison where he earned the nickname Blade. He gets paroled in 1973, which if you did the math, is 13 years. So I'm kind of of the opinion that he got a life sentence, but was paroled in 13 years, which is why some accounts of this crime say he only got a 13-year sentence. So after he gets out, he goes to work at a garage in Ashland, and not too far away, he rents an apartment. Not long after he was paroled, he attempted to rape the lady who managed the apartment building he lived at. He choked her while assaulting her and basically left her for dead. But miraculously, she survived, and Brown is promptly sent back to prison. Another 13 years go by, and Brown gets paroled once again in June of 1986. Now, let me confuse everyone yet again. According to Bob Curley, not much is known about what he was up to between 73 and 80, other than he got married and had a son. But in other places, I find he went right back to prison after getting out. This case has so many conflicting timelines that I about threw my iPad across the room in frustration. I'm going to say now, I don't know what the hell really happened between the time he got out the first time, tried to kill the landlady, and then his final set of kills. I hope you are as frustrated as I am at this point because misery loves company. 
What I do know is that when he got out in 1986, he went to work in Phoenix City as a mechanic. He met a woman named Linda Lamont, who was 32 at the time. Brown would have been 41 that year. Linda had a 10-year-old daughter, Sheila, and six-year-old son, Aaron. Brown would pop in for meals, and Linda's neighbors by that point all knew him from his frequent visits to Linda and the children. On August 10th, 1987, Linda's boss called Beverly Evans, who was Linda's mother, because Linda hadn't shown up for work. Beverly then finds out that her grandchildren were not at school that day. She and her husband then go to Linda's apartment. No one answers the door. She then goes and knocks on the window of her grandson Aaron's window. The six-year-old climbs out from under the bed where he was hiding. Aaron goes and opens the door for his grandparents. They find Linda dead in the living room and 10-year-old Sheila dead in her bedroom. They both appear to have been stabbed to death in a frenzied type attack. Detectives suspect that the attack had begun with the assailant attempting or succeeding in raping the 10-year-old child and that the attack had been interrupted by the mother, Linda. There was also this weird question if maybe this dispute started because of a card game. There was paper there with the names Linda, Sheila, and one that said, me. These were found near some playing cards. Police are thinking perhaps some kind of out-of-control rage over something not going right in the card game resulted in these murders. There is also a Polaroid picture taken of Linda post-mortem that was on top of the television. There is a fingerprint on that Polaroid. The medical examiner finds a nine-inch slash wound across Linda's throat, as well as a 27-inch slash wound from her throat down to her groin that exposed her abdominal cavity. Sound familiar? He created the same wound on his 31-year-old aunt's body back in 1960. And there it is, the conflicting info I mentioned a few minutes ago, one of many. Bob Curley, the author, says it was Grandma Ethel. Other sources say it was Aunt Berta May. As far as Linda goes, there were also stab wounds to her vagina, rectum, and breasts, which speak to a sexual motive. Ten-year-old Sheila has multiple stab wounds to her chest, throat, and abdomen, and in fact, the knife is protruding from her navel where it is embedded almost up to the handle. The examination of Sheila also shows that she had been sexually assaulted. Neighbors told police that Brown's car had been outside the apartment the night before the bodies were discovered. It isn't a huge leap for the police to decide that they should find Raymond Brown. They execute a search warrant on his apartment, and there they find blood belonging to Linda. Because of the horrific and brutal nature of the crime, authorities go public as they hunt for Brown, using words like extremely dangerous and psychopathic killer who kills for the fun of it. On the morning of August 10th, prior to the bodies being found, Brown gets into an auto accident 20 miles from Montgomery in a place called Jordan Lake. This is about 6.15 in the morning. He admitted to the state trooper who arrived on the scene that he'd been drunk when he ran his vehicle off the road. Instead of arresting him, he lets Brown go, but he does tow the car. Now, a few hours later, when police are looking for Brown, 
They have some idea of his last location, so they launch a large-scale manhunt. In fact, one source I read said a nearby YMCA camp evacuated something like 140 campers because the area where Brown had been spotted was near the camp. Brown had gone into hiding in the woods and managed to avoid the pretty substantial hunt for him until August 12th. That was about 48 hours after the car accident. That day, his thirst got the best of him, and he came out of the woods to get himself a pop. Soda, for those of you not from the Midwest. And the clerk at the gas station recognized him because the police had gone public with the search. So the clerk makes a call to police. As Brown is walking out of the woods, a deputy stops him and asks for ID, which he gives. As he's been hiding in the woods, he doesn't know there's this huge manhunt for him. Well, needless to say, he is immediately seized by deputies. The Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles was criticized, justifiably, for having ever released Brown in the first place. The time of the murders of Linda and Sheila, he'd been paroled not once, but twice. He should have never, ever been paroled after the triple homicide he committed as a teenager. And no one will convince me otherwise. And I am not alone in that thinking. The attorney who represented Brown in 1960 for the murders of his relatives told the press later on that Brown should have never been let out of prison. He fully believed that Brown would kill again. And of course, he was right. He went on to say that had the parole board bothered to ask him, he would have told them that. The local district attorney was also none too happy that their office was never told that Brown had been paroled and was living in Montgomery. A grand jury investigation ensued to determine if the parole board had been too lenient. One newspaper wrote this, quote, By now, everyone thinks he understands the mistake made with Raymond Eugene Brown. When an otherwise well-balanced 14-year-old boy carves up his 31-year-old aunt with 123 knife slashes, leaving her laid open, groin to throat, there's a sexual screw loose somewhere. End quote. Not too long after the murders occurred, a deputy district attorney said this case was, quote, one of the most graphically horrible cases we've had since I've been a DA. And he also said, quote, if any case called for the electric chair, Browns does, end quote. The Montgomery chief of police, John Wilson, said the crime scene was one of the most hideous in this area in a long time. Before his trial, and again in his appeal after conviction, Brown pointed to all of the publicity surrounding the case and argued that it had a negative effect on his case. In case I confused you, this is the trial for the murders of Linda and Sheila. So the Alabama Court of Appeals didn't disagree in its opinion that the trial judge had made a mistake. They wrote this. The trial judge should have asked those jurors who had been exposed to the pretrial publicity in this case about the extent of their knowledge of the case. Then the trial judge could have independently determined whether any juror's knowledge about the case had destroyed his or her ability to be fair and impartial. The verdict of the trial was death and Raymond was sent to Holman Correctional Facility in Atmore, Alabama. As a result of the appeal I mentioned, a 12-year journey on Brown's case ensued and even went to a hearing before the United States Supreme Court. 
Fortunately, when all was said and done, Raymond Eugene Brown's conviction and death sentence were upheld. I'd like to tell you he ended up in the electric chair, which was called Yellow Mama in Alabama, but he died of natural causes in 2008. That'll wrap today's episode up. Hang tight for the final crumb. In the meantime, you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Crime Biscuit. Send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. I'm going to paraphrase Sheriff Marge Gunderson from the movie Fargo. Five people dead, and for what? A little bit of money. Don't you know there's more to life than money? And here you are, and it's a beautiful day. Well, I just don't understand. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.